Today is Father's Day. I don't know if you knew that or not. And uh, it's a special day for many of us who are fathers. And I have to tell you, it was a struggle for me to figure out what to preach on. And uh, my inbox and my email uh, was just filled with all kind of advertisements and promotions about how to preach, no joke, direct quote, energetic and awesome sermons for your men. <laughs> so naturally, clickbait. So I clicked on it. I was like, all right, let's see this. And they promised, here's what they promised. If you use our illustrations or the outlines of these sermons, we promise that no father in your church will leave dry-eyed, uninspired, or unmotivated. What? I got to do that. By the way, anytime anyone tells you, if you do X, then I guarantee Y, and it comes in spiritual things, they're a liar. Because we cannot guarantee that if we do X, God will do Y. Right? Because God is God and we're not. That's called pragmatism when we think that we can do X and then guarantee Y. So uh, some of the things that I started to read some of the sermons, they fell into two categories. Number one category is this. Preach a sermon that will encourage men to be better fathers, better husbands, better role models by living better lives, by cultivating them and having better disciplines. Be better, men. <laughs> End of sermon. <laughs> and I thought, what man is going to leave like, <sighs> and then the second one was encourage men that they are doing a good job. Their lives are going to change the world because they have that much influence. In other words, you're awesome. <laughs> and I looked at that and I thought in a nutshell, you know what? There's no way I'm going to preach either, kinds, either one of those kinds of sermons because neither of them is gospel. Because one of them is good advice, be better. That sounds great until you try. And then your wife reminds you, the Father's Day message was be better. The other one is, you're awesome, which is flattery. And flattery is basically what I like to call the empty calories of encouragement. You eat them, and at first they taste really good, except for after a while you feel bloated and you feel like garbage. <laughs> flattery does no good to the hearer. So instead I thought, you know what? The sermon I should preach is a sermon for the church but also that is applicable to the fathers explicitly, but that will actually honor God, glorify the name of Christ, and provide for you what I think you need most desperately, more of Jesus. So I'm going to preach the gospel. And I'm going to do so out of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. You're probably wondering how in the world is he going to preach the gospel out of the Old Testament. Watch me. And we read, verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. 
She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to meet me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And are not Abana and Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So, Father, we thank you for this story because it is a precursor of the glorious work of the great restorer, Jesus Christ. For in coming to Jesus, we find refreshment. In coming to Jesus, we know that we are restored and one day when Jesus returns, he's going to restore all things. And so, God, as we look in this Old Testament text, would you be pleased to reveal to us how we see Jesus and how we can be refreshed in the gospel? And so I pray, especially for the men who are fathers, God, help them to see that their greatest need is you and that in having you, they have everything they could ever want. So God, this takes divine intervention. It takes you illumining the mind and granting new hearts to believe and behold. And so we're asking you to do these things for us, for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. So who in the world is Naaman? If you look in verse 1, Naaman is described as a man with a great reputation. It says that he was a great man and with his master was in high favor. And so what we learn from that is the reality, Naaman was just something special. He had a great reputation with his boss, who was the king of Syria. He was held in great honor and esteem. Quite honestly, if he was living in our day and age, he would be the kind of person that we as men would want to aspire to be. He's in a great position in society. He's well known, perhaps even famous. He is known as a great man, someone who stands out among the rest he has great reputation, which means he has demonstrated character over a long period of time. And then it goes on in verse 1, and it says, It's because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. 
which means he was successful in everything that he did. He had a great reputation because he was a military victor. He had great leadership ability. He was brave and he had valor, which means he was able to lead his men into war without fear, without ever backing down. He was a man's man. And if he lived in today's society, I tell you what, and especially if he was a Christian, what would end up happening is we would uphold Naaman as the ideal man because he is the ideal success story. In fact, Naaman would probably be invited to be the chief speaker and keynote speaker at many men's conferences. He would be asked to speak at men's breakfasts, and we would extol his virtues as a man. Not only that, but new ministries would spring up in the church and in Christian subculture. Are you going to the Naaman Network? And they would be all over the place. He would have a great following on Instagram and a Twitter feed that would just be reshared time and time again. We would look at his life and all of his success and all of his achievements, and we would conclude this guy knows how to live. Let me ask you the question, why do we do that? Why do we in our society today, why do we put successful people, successful organizations, and successful churches on pedestals? And I think one of the reasons why is because we suffer from being a culture that idolizes success and achievement. Pastor Tim Keller has helped me, unlike anybody else, to understand this idea of idolatry specifically idolatry of success and achievement. He was a pastor in New York City, a prolific writer. He writes this about the idol of success and achievement. Our contemporary culture makes us particularly vulnerable to turning success into an idol. Modern society puts great pressure on individuals to prove their worth through personal achievement. It's not enough to be a good citizen or a good family member. You must win. You must be on top to show that you are one of the best. And what's really interesting about idolatry is simply this. Idolatry is almost never a bad thing that you are idolizing. We idolize things like money. Money is not evil in and of itself. But when you begin to idolize money, what you do is you take this good thing like money and you make it an ultimate thing. So you can take a good thing like children and make them an ultimate thing. You can take a good thing like your marriage and make it an ultimate thing. And in taking a good thing, which is given to you by God, and making it ultimate, you are idolizing it. So Tim Keller goes on to explain this. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without even a second thought. It can be family and children, career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, saving face, social standing. It could be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances. It could be your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue. It can even be Christian success in ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I only had that, 
Then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If I only had that. So what I do with people is I often ask them a question to help them diagnose the level of their idolatry. And the question goes something like this. What is something in your life that if it were taken from you, you would feel that you were a nobody? As you think about your life, what is the one thing or what is a thing about your life that it was, if it were taken from you, you would feel like you are nothing, you are nobody? And the answer to that question is the identity of what is your heart's greatest treasure. And therefore, where you more than likely are guilty of idolatry. You see, that happens when you have something taken from you and you utter the, the phrase, now that this is gone, who am I? What do I do now? What am I supposed to do? That means that thing that has been taken from you had such a controlling effect in your life that it gave you your identity and self-worth, not God. And you have replaced that thing, or you've replaced God with that thing. So how do you know if success and achievement is an idol that you have? Well, does success in parenting, business, school, sports, etc., does it make you feel secure and invincible? Let me give you an example. Usually when people are idolaters of success, they will feel as though they are kept safe from troubles in life and are shocked when things bad happen to them. I actually had this said to me one time when somebody was experiencing, they got rear-ended and their Mercedes got totaled. And they literally said this to me, I don't deserve this. I have a degree from Berkeley. My child is a surgeon. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> the person behind you was texting and they ran into you. Your surgeon's son can't save you from that. <laughs> but, but you see what I'm saying? So when something befalls us, which is troubling and hard, we usually will utter, how can this be? How could this happen to someone like me? Your idol of success and achievement is beginning to peak out. Another way is to look at your self-importance. You see, when idolatry of success, uh, when, when you suffer from that in achievement, you will be very self-important. And what I mean by that is what you are good at or what you are an expert in, you will begin to think because of that expertise, you are now an expert in everything. <laughs> Let me give you a couple of examples. These are real life things, by the way. Phil, I have raised three successful children. And I think I can handle running new electricity in my house. <laughs> How does one lead to the other? I, I don't, I don't, I'm not following your logic. Or how about this? I was having a, a, a discussion about theology and the person said, look, I have an engineering degree. <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> how does your engineering degree like affect the conversation of theology that we're having. Or here's another one. Um, I have four income properties, and we were talking about psychoanalysis and all that kind of stuff, and they said, I have four income properties. I mean, I know a thing or two. And I said, you do? 
but you're not a psychologist. (laughs) But do you see what happens when we have idolatry of success and achievement? We can think, man, my success and achievement in this arena makes me important in all these other arenas. (laughs) No, no, no. And you see, this is Naaman. I think he has a problem. Look at the last five words of the sentence in verse 1. Naaman has all of this success, all of this achievement. And yet it says, but he was a leper. Which tells me for as much success and achievement as Naaman had, there was an even greater problem um, to his life. That is the fact that he has leprosy. And uh, no amount of valor, no amount of reputation, no amount of respect or fame will ever cure Naaman of his leprosy. It's the incurable, incurable disease of that time. It would have the same effect on people back then as the effect has on us today if you were to hear the diagnosis, you have cancer. It's earth-shattering. It's life-changing. And I have to be honest with you, no amount of degrees is ever going to cure you of cancer. It just won't happen. No amount of accolades is ever going to cure you of cancer. And that is Naaman's dilemma. But hope emerges. There's a solution for Naaman. Verse 2, there's this little girl who's been taken away. She's been kidnapped from Israel. And she's working in Naaman's home serving Naaman's wife. And she comes to Naaman's wife and she says, would that the Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. There's hope. There's actually a solution. If he can get into the presence of the prophet in Samaria, he could be healed. And so Naaman hears this and he goes to his Lord, the king of Syria. He asks if he can go to the land of of Israel to be cured of his leprosy. And the king of Syria says, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So this is kind of a letter of a recommendation. Imagine for a second, this is in a very important person, the king of Syria, writing a letter to another very important person, the king of Israel, about a third very important person named Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. So when Naaman requests to leave, he's granted that leave. And this letter is presumably an official letter to justify the legitimacy of Naaman's request. But look what Naaman does the rest of verse 5. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Just to put it in modern day terms, he took a boatload of money with him. Why? Well, probably it's true in this culture as it is today. Money talks. And the more money you have, the greater access you get. You see, the wealthier you are, the more privilege you have. And it's true of this culture and it's true of ours. So what Naaman is doing is he's leveraging his wealth and his success and his achievements to get what he wants. Verse 6. So he brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, obviously, I want you to heal my name in my servant of his leprosy. What's amazing is, as good Bible readers, we should remember that in verse 3, the slave girl, the servant girl said, you need to go to the presence of the prophet. And where does Naaman go? To the king. Why? Why does he not go to the prophet, and why instead does he go to the king? 
Well, remember that Naaman is a very important, dignified man. He's a successful commander, an accomplished leader. He's a great man, famous, well-respected. Why in the world would he go to some unnamed prophet in some podunk region of the world called Samaria when he can go to the dignified leader of an entire nation? In other words, if you have access to dine with the president, why in the world would you settle for Burger King lunch with an intern? You see where I'm going with this? So if he, being the man he is, with all of his accolades and achievements, can have the kind of audience with a king, why in the world would he choose someone lesser? He's a dignified man after all. The Apostle Paul speaks about this kind of attitude. And he says we as Christians must never have this kind of attitude. Well, I will only associate with the most dignified people. He says in Romans 12, verse 3, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And then verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be haughty, do not be arrogant or boastful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And so there is a rebuke from the Apostle Paul to any of us who may think that there are some I will associate with and there are some that I will not, for they are beneath me. So what happens when the king reads this letter? I love this, verse 7. When the king read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? You want me to do what? You think I have that kind of power to heal people of leprosy? Who do you think I am, God? He is incredulous. He cannot believe his ears. And you see that when someone is put into a position of God, they despair of that position. I do not want to be put in the position of God. And yet I have to reluctantly... I, point out the fact that at times you and I are guilty of doing that exact thing. We at times are guilty of putting those we love and those around us into the position of God to their own despair. Our idolatry is often causing us to use the people around us to fortify our self-worth and our value. And how do we do that? Well, for instance, as spouses... Sometimes we can ask our spouses to satisfy us in ways that only God can. We want our spouses to meet our every emotional, physical, social, and even spiritual needs. We want unconditional acceptance and love. We want total security and perfect trust. The reality, though, is this. The only way to experience that is if you married a perfect person. And newsflash, you voluntarily married someone you knew was not perfect. And they likewise. So now all of a sudden you find yourself in a covenant with an imperfect person. And you being an imperfect person is asking this imperfect person to satisfy you perfectly. Do you not realize you're asking your spouse to be God for you? They're going to despair of that because no person can bear the weight of having to be God for another person. 
You can't do that. And so, when you want a perfect person who will give you perfect acceptance, perfect love, perfect security, perfect trust, what you really want in your heart of hearts, you want God. That's what you want. So don't ask your spouse to be God for you. Or else you might find your spouse ripping their clothes going, am I God? (laughs) Since it's Father's Day, let me give this application to fathers. I would say most often this kind of thing happens as we fathers raise our kids in such a way that their performance, their accolades, and their achievements are really just projections of our own desires and insecurities. And what I mean is this, for example, and I'm using this because this is a token beat the dead horse situation. You all know of the sports dad. The dad who had dreams of professional baseball like me, who ended up not playing professional baseball like me, who then projects their failed aspirations upon their child and are trying to live vicariously through the accomplishments of their child's sports. I have to tell you honestly, I must combat that every day of my life because I do not want my son to ever feel that his success or his failure is ultimately going to change my own self-worth and value in my own eyes. A child cannot bear that kind of weight. I must succeed or else my dad will be devastated. I must not fail because in failing, my dad will be devastated. Likewise, if I succeed, my dad will be happy because my dad's reputation, dignity, self-worth, identity, and value is riding on me. Dads, don't put that kind of pressure on your kids. Don't ask your children to be gods for you. Or else you may find yourself one day looking at your child in despair who is ripping up their diplomas, who are ripping up their awards, who are setting fire to the banners and the trophies, who are throwing away their baseball equipment, who are kicking to the curb their instrument because in having those things around, it's a visual representation that my parents were looking to me for their value and self-worth and dignity, and I failed them. Do you see how your idolatry is not just an issue with you? It's an issue that affects us all. The king tore his robe because he was put in the position of God. Likewise, we can sometimes put the people we love most in the position of God. And that is not fair. That, they cannot bear that kind of weight. So what is the solution? Well, the king tears his robe. Elisha, the man of God, hears of it and says, what are you doing? Just send him to me. So, verse 9, Naaman comes with his horses, his chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. I imagine he knocks on the door, runs back to his horses and chariots, gets everything settled, making sure it looks Instagrammable. (laughs) Then gets himself all set up, turns to his servants, how do I look? Good? Yeah, you look good. All right, sweet. (laughs) You see what's going on. 
And then he's expecting, given all of his qualifications, given all of the fact that he is just this great man with status and reputation, he's expecting, I'll knock on the door. And since I'm a dignified great man, this great dignified man who's a prophet named Elisha is going to open the door and we, the dignitaries, are going to do business. Verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. Elisha sent the intern. <laughs> I love that. Because I think God's at work here. I think Naaman suffers not just from, my, from leprosy. It appears that Naaman also suffers from the idolatry of self-importance and success and achievement. Because he expects, given he's so dignified, he can only hold the company of other dignitaries. And to be greeted by an intern is beneath him. But look at what the intern says. Ah, oh, go, wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. What great news. You just got to do this and then you're good. Who wouldn't take that advice and go, look, my finger fell off last week. Man, I will do anything to get healed of this leprosy. But look at Naaman's response. He hears the words coming out of the intern's mouth. And what does he do? Verse 11. Naaman was angry and went away. <laughs> you would think this man who only got, you know, nine fingers and half a nose or whatever would be somewhat excited at the possibility of having his flesh restored. But no, he runs away angry. He throws a fit. He says, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to meet me, stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. In other words, I thought this was going to be a grand, exciting, glorious, momentous thing. This is ordinary. This is not extraordinary at all. And I'm a great man, and I deserve great pomp and circumstance. Where are the fireworks? <laughs> you see what he's saying? I want big stuff. I want famous stuff. Dude, dude you know who I am? I'm a big deal. <laughs> and he says, are not, the, are not Abana and Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I wash in them and be clean? You see what he's saying? He's like, look, your, your river is dirty. It's, no, I'm not doing that. That's beneath me. <laughs> well, having been greeted by the intern, told that he could be clean, going away angry, throwing a fit, is not Naaman revealing the fact that he is an idolater and that his idolatry is an idol of success and achievement and self-importance? And the answer would be, yeah, it's exactly what he's suffering with. So I have to read verse 13. And verse 13 is the solution. You see, many of us gathered even in this room, when we hear sermons like this, we tend to think, oh, man, I hope so-and-so is here. They really need to hear this. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Actually, perhaps this is for you. You see, if you've ever been looked over for a promotion or 
You've ever put in an offer on the house that was rejected or your application for a new job went unnoticed or something like that. And you get the sensation that you feel worthless, that you just feel like, man, see, I'm nothing. That's probably a good indication that you are suffering as an idolater. Because your new job or the new house or the promotion, that is what you're looking for. If I only had that, then I'll feel important. So what is the solution? I love verse 13. I'm going to read it out of the NIV. It pains me to say so. <laughs> but I think it clearly articulates what's going on here. Look at this, verse 13 in the NIV. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, look at this. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? In other words, so you just threw a fit. You need to act your age, not your shoe size, right? So here's the thing. Are you saying that if the prophet would have told you to do some great thing because you're such a great man, you would have done it? That's a rhetorical question. But it's a rhetorical question of rebuke. In other words, it's something like this. Just because the act that is told to you that you must do in order to be healed doesn't match your supposed greatness, are you seriously refusing to be healed? That's ridiculous. <laughs> so, one of the things I want to show is that this is common to how God works. You see, it was an Israelite servant who was the very bottom of the social pecking order who told Naaman the good news of hope in the first place. It was the prophet's intern who told Naaman how to be healed. And now it's Naaman's servants who are challenging him to humble himself and thus be healed. So the healing is not only a healing of leprosy, but now even the, the servants of Naaman are telling him, you also can be healed of your idolatry if you will simply hear the solution, trust it because it comes from God Almighty, and then respond in obedience, and you will be healed. But do you see, Naaman is so arrogant and so boastful and so proud and such an idolater of success and achievement and accomplishment and self-importance that he can't fathom the idea, I need to humble myself? Are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? And yet the New Testament is one of the great encouragements about this whole thing revealing how God loves to work in this way when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 25 what you see there is the apostle Paul asking or really helping us to take inventory for consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to no, to worldly standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
And what God loves to do is God loves to see proud people and then slowly begin to put his hand upon them until they begin to be humble. And as they are humbled under the mighty hand of God and find themselves prostrate, face down on the ground, finally at a place where they acknowledge nothing I do can ever save me or heal me from what really avails me. There is nothing that I can do to remedy this condition I'm in. And that's exactly what God wanted to do to Naaman. Your success, your achievements, your self-importance can't heal you of leprosy. Admit it. Your selfish tendencies and idolatry cannot heal you of your own idolatry. And so therefore, God humbles Naaman by sending ordinary people to preach a message which is so ordinary and unimpressive. And yet God says it's through the ordinary things that I plan to do extraordinary things. And brothers and sisters, you must hear this. We live in a culture that wants everything to be done in extraordinary fashion. And we assign value to only those things which are big and famous and fast. So when we hear of a church advertised, fastest growing church in the community, awesome worship, huge children's ministry, we're like, I gotta go, I gotta go. May it never be that Golden Hills ever advertises in such a way that it elicits more idolatry. God is great. God is great. And God has ordained it in Scripture that he loves to use ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary things. You have to realize this. It's just the ordinary things that God loves to use. But you and I, we lust for success. We lust for extraordinary. We covet success. And that's why the Apostle Paul calls all covetousness idolatry in Colossians 3.5. And that's why the Apostle John says in 1 John 5.21, the very last thing he says in that letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. No amount of outward accomplishment can ever cure the inward disease of sin. We must know that. This prophet, as ordinary as he may be, sending an ordinary intern with an ordinary message to go to an ordinary river to do an ordinary act, God was planning to do an extraordinary miracle through. And brothers and sisters, this points us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the great restorer of sinners. It is Jesus who has done so many unimpressive things and has accomplished such extraordinary things. When you think about it like this, just think about how God has ordained this. God has said through the ordinary things like preaching the gospel that people will be saved. And so that tells me you don't have to have a huge social media following and platform in order to be effective in preaching the gospel. You just have to be faithful and you have to know the gospel and then speak it. In your ordinary circumstances, with your ordinary mundane life, driving your Prius down the freeway, God can do extraordinary things through you. 
And until we get that in our heads, where we put to death the idolatry of success, we will never see the ordinary things God uses to accomplish extraordinary things as being things that we should do because they're beneath us. And so think about it. God has said the ordinary thing like confession of sin, the ordinary thing like repentance, the ordinary thing like fellowship with believers, the ordinary thing like eating a meal together, the ordinary thing of having communion together, the ordinary thing of baptism, the ordinary thing of reading your Bible and praying. These are the ordinary things that God promises to do extraordinary things through. And so I would encourage you, admit your ordinariness. <laughs> Don't be addicted to extraordinary things where you think unless God is doing extraordinary things, God doesn't care. No, 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 no. God says, get in this book. Pray. Be with other believers. Eat together. Be hospitable. Do the ordinary things and be faithful to them because in so doing, you're going to see me work. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's good. Especially when we consider Jesus. It sounds blasphemy to say this, but he was so ordinary. Think about it. The Bible says he had nothing about him which was attractive, which drew people to him. He was born in a stable. He grew up in a backwater town. He worked as a day laborer. He lived with his family. He lived obediently to the law of God. He was killed on a com uh, as a common criminal. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Which of those things is extraordinary? They're all ordinary to teach us that God plans to do extraordinary things through ordinary means. And so what happened, Jesus, dead and buried, arose from the dead, extraordinary, mind-blowing thing with life in his hand. And he says, all who repent and believe in me will have their sins forgiven and you will be granted new life. Extraordinary thing. And so if God has revealed himself in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? Not addicted to extraordinary, not addicted to big, not addicted to famous, not addicted to fast, but we should be faithful with the little things. Be faithful with the ordinary things. Be faithful that God ultimately is our great restorer. And do what God asks us to do. And God simply says... Repent and believe. Let me read for you in the book of Acts, chapter 3. The apostle Peter preaches and he finishes the exhortation of what we should do in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. And look at the effect of believing, repenting and believing the gospel. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, Naaman had to go to the presence of the prophet because that's where the word of God dwells. And now we are encouraged to be refreshed by the presence of the Lord. And how we come into the presence of the Lord is through Jesus. And we come to Jesus through repentance and faith. So when coming to Jesus, we are refreshed. And that our hope is that one day he will send Christ, who's appointed for us, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus came, and he's coming again.
And in the meantime, God has ordained ordinary things for us to do and promises. I'm going to blow your mind with what I will do through these ordinary things. So just be faithful. Pick up your Bible and read it. Pray. Come to church. Fellowship with believers. Take communion. Be baptized. Go to lunch together. And watch me work. So on this Father's Day, let me encourage you, fathers, you're not awesome. (laughs) But let me point you to this reality. Everything that you were designed to experience for your greatest joy is found in Jesus. He is awesome. And fathers, I'm not going to encourage you to go and do better because God knows that you're going to fail. So God sent Jesus to be better for you. So repent and believe in him and trust that your acceptance by God is because of Jesus and his achievements and his success and his accomplishments and his obedience, not yours. So I pray for you, fathers, that you would be refreshed in the gospel and that God would restore you, that your great job or your no job does not define you, that your kids' achievements or lack of achievements do not define you, your ability to take your family on vacation to Europe or your inability do not define you. You were made in the image of God. That image has been distorted by sin. But God sent Jesus so that in repenting and believing in him, that the image of God will be restored. You would be refreshed. And you will be liberated from the bondage of your idolatry. So brothers and sisters, and men especially, I commend you. Repent and believe the gospel. And so be free. So Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that you sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin. I thank you that Jesus has come to restore and to reconcile all things in him by making peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you that Jesus has risen to the right hand of the Father and interceding for us. And I pray, God, that you would implant in every heart of every man gathered in here that as fathers, the greatest thing we can do is not to give big homes to our families or great vacations or great opportunities, but the greatest thing we can do for our families is to share the gospel, to call our wives and our children back to repentance and belief in the gospel so that in so doing you would refresh us and restore us and that you, through the ordinary means that you have ordained for us, that we would experience the extraordinary work of God. So God, work in our families, I pray. And do for us these things, for we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.